Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 147 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. On today's episode, law enforcement officer, veteran spouse, and caregiver Sean Moore shares the very personal and compelling story of the day she successfully intervened in her husband's suicide attempt and how she's turned that into a mission to help other family members and caregivers take care of each other by having courageous conversations. We can't make these conversations difficult. They, they just have to happen. And they happen when there's communication between the spouses, between our professional counselors, therapists, doctors. And not only does my husband have a, a safety plan, I do too, because this journey isn't easy. He knows what to look out for in me too. Before we get started, I want to give listeners a heads up that as we approach the 150th episode of the Headspace and Timing podcast, I'm going to be doing something different. I have a number of great guests lined up over the next couple episodes, so keep tuning in. After that, I'm going to be putting new guest interviews on hold while I develop a new project. I'll be going back and putting together shorter episodes based on previous conversations, so keep subscribed, keep listening, and keep giving feedback. To keep up with all the latest, sign up for our newsletter by going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash update. So we're finally ready to announce the new project. Starting in January of 2020, I will be partnering with Military Times to start a new podcast, Seeking the Military Suicide Solution. This will be a show that brings the knowledge of experts on suicide in the military-affiliated population to the communities that need it. I'll be co-hosting the show with a nationally recognized suicide prevention expert. It'll be a weekly show that'll be limited to 50 episodes released throughout the year. I'm looking for those of you who want to get in early on the new project. I've started to build a community of listeners on Flick, so you can go there, interact with other listeners, provide feedback on the show, or interact with the host and the guest. While on your phone, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash community to learn more. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation.
Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn about veteran mental health. Um, and, and often when I talk about veteran mental health, I don't necessarily just mean veteran mental health. Um, many of us in the community have started to expand that to talk about service member, veteran, and military family mental health because uh, our, our mental health impacts our family and our family impacts mental health. Um, and my guest today uh, knows that, preaches that, um, has has built a, a very passionate platform in which to kind of talk about that. So, Sean Moore, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, uh, I really appreciate uh, uh, the response. It's amazing. Um, there's so many of us doing so many things, uh, and I believe I reached out to you to find out how things were happening in Kansas City for um, a suicide prevention. I'd heard in Colorado Springs how well things were being done, um, and and as we so often hear, um, you know, it's like, oh, I've never heard about caregivers in the home front and, and what you were doing, um, and so listening to more about your your story and your background and the work that you're trying to doing. Uh, trying to do, uh, obviously wanted to have you on the show and we'll get into that. But uh, before we talk about that, I want to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a bit about yourself. You bet. So as you said, I live in Kansas city, Missouri, and I met my husband who is a 23 year army veteran about six years ago. And uh, we got married about four years ago. In fact, our anniversary is coming up on the 21st. And I was a police officer at the time here in Kansas City. And I thought that I I truly knew how to respond to a veteran with PTSD. And I quickly learned that I did not. Um, and it's different when you take off that police officer hat and put on at the time, you know, first the hat as a girlfriend and then as a wife. And um, that doesn't, the police officer hat really doesn't set well uh, with a special operations guy in your house. So um, I had to quickly learn and educate myself how best it was that I could support him. And I did that first off with, I, I'm an avid reader to begin with. So um, I just sunk myself into anything that I could come up with PTSD related because that is his, that is his major injury that he has come home with after seven combat tours to Afghanistan. And I started the support group that was with a um, national organization. But one of the things that I quickly saw was that we were only sporting post 9-11 veterans, and I was coming in contact with all eras of, of veterans, as well as um, being a first responder, of course, first responder families. And um, they, I think that's a different population that is just coming to terms with, hey, we really need to do something about what's going on with our, with our first responders. So I took it a little bit further and in 2017 started a um, nonprofit called Caregivers on the Homefront. And we do just that. We support all family members. You don't have to be an official caregiver through the VA. I get that question a lot. It's all family members of all eras of veterans, as well as our first responders. So 
Um, I continued that. I advocate a lot. I am an alumna with the Elizabeth Dole Foundation. Our program director with Caregivers on the Homefront took my spot as the current Elizabeth Dole Fellow for Missouri. So it was a wonderful and seamless transition here in Missouri to continue the work and the the contacts that and relationships that we had made um, over the past two years. And then through that, I um, I mean, I've had a wonderful platform to to really bring to light what it means to support a veteran. And it's just not looking at the veteran. It's looking at his or her entire entire surroundings, their entire environment. And and that goes back to the families because the families are with them 24-7. So I also went back to school, um, finished my bachelor's after many, many years. And I am now in my last year getting ready to start here next week of obtaining my master's in social work. And that's just so I have some letters behind my name to put our programs together with um, education as well as our lived experiences in our, in our organization. You know, and, and that's great. And, and you obviously uh, with the lived experience uh, know how critical this is. And this is something that I often, uh, I of course talk to veterans that I work with as a clinical mental health counselor. Um, it, it's not just, things aren't just happening in a vacuum. Um, uh, my wife and I, um, were married for, uh, four of my five deployments. Um, she experienced my deployments obviously very differently than I did. Um, as we had talked in our communications before, I'm the son of a police officer who's also a Vietnam vet. So we didn't know where Vietnam ended and the streets began. You're absolutely right. We're not having a national conversation around first responder mental health the way that we are about, um, veteran mental health. Uh, and so a, a lot of that, um, is, is really critical, but you have a very compelling story that, that really brought this to light that, that made you think that somebody needs to do something because that something wasn't there for me. Correct. And funny that we happen to be speaking on August 9th because two years ago I woke up, um, a day very much so like this day, um, temperature and, and the sun shining and, uh, woke up like any other day, happy. And the only, um, the only difference was I did not leave for work this morning, but two years ago, I, um, was getting ready as, um, to go into, uh, my job as a police officer and my husband and I, like I said, we had just started the nonprofit, so I was pretty excited, and we were talking about what our logo was going to look like, and um, after I left home, I actually carried on that conversation because I called him, um, being so excited with actually starting everything, and he was in a great a great place. Um, my husband and I have been married before. We knew we brought baggage to the the marriage. Um, like I said, I've got stuff from being a police officer. He has stuff from being in the military. And we've always been very proactive at um, seeing a therapist. And we had saw a therapist the day before. So I um, went to work and ended up having to get off the phone to, to help a, a gal when I was walking into work. And um, my husband was going to a place where I thought he would be extremely safe for the day. And when I say safe, 
I mean, I let my guard down and, and worrying about his safety and mental health for the day. And um, I continued to text him because I had all this great, um, great stuff coming up in my mind with our nonprofit. So I knew, though, he would probably not contact me again until around lunchtime, just um, from where he was at and the activities that were taking place. And um, we also were getting ready to leave for a military family retreat the next day. So that kind of sets the stage and letting you and your audience know that from all outside aspects, um, everything looked pretty well. And when um, I, I was meeting two of my daughters at uh, my little one's school t- because we were going to miss meet your teacher night. And um, she's got a little bit of higher anxiety. So I didn't want her to go in cold turkey the first day of school. So we went up to, I was headed up to the school to meet them. And just, I mean, I can remember where I was at. I can remember feeling the sun shining through my window of my car And I just had this really sinking feeling in my stomach. And as a police officer, I have come to uh, know that you don't ignore that. Um, You may miss the bad guy walking right past you if you ignore that. So I I called my husband and he didn't answer. And even on our worst days, uh, we don't ignore. We we answer a text and we answer phone calls. So I knew that that was quite unlike him. So I sent a text to um, one of our um, mutual friends where I knew my husband was supposed to be at and asked if he was still there and um, got the old military slash first responder standby. And I'm like, okay. So I went on into my daughter's school and I was probably in there for about 40 minutes and came back out and still hadn't heard from him. So I knew at that point in time that something was terribly wrong. And um, I looked at my older older daughter and said, okay, you're going to have to take the little one home. I've got to go and find him. And at that point, as a wife, I'm like, well, how am I supposed to do that? <laughs> um, I hadn't heard from anyone um, that I had text to see if he was still there. And and I just, in my mind and in my gut, I knew that he wasn't still there and he wasn't safe in a safe spot. And again, like I said, something was terribly wrong. And at that point in time, I kind of switched out of being a wife and put on my police officer hat because I had to find him. And, um, you know, for some reason I knew that he wasn't home and I knew that he wasn't where he, he had been. And, um, thankfully as faith and fate have it and, uh, the, I think the amazing works of, um, our Lord at times, uh, I was able to track my husband's phone and, and I've always been able to track all of our phones, but it was because I had some, um, my, my oldest daughter who is now 30 had some problems at a point in time that I always wanted to know where she was at, um, in her mid twenties. So, um, thankfully (laughs) we went through that or I wouldn't have been able to find my husband that, that day. 
And as I was traveling over to where I thought he was, um, I was talking to one of my caregiver friends, which um, kind of goes right into this. As family members and caregivers, we have to have a tribe. Um, if we if we don't have a tribe to, to lean on, we can't get through these tough days. And um, I called her immediately. She ended up talking me into not going by myself. And as I got closer to where I thought my husband was at, I'm like, you know, that's probably a pretty good idea as a police officer. I wouldn't be going into this type of call, which was a check the welfare call, basically, um, by myself. So I called um, a good friend of ours who I thought was probably out where my husband had been, which he was. So that meant he was only a few minutes away from where I thought my husband was at. And this gentleman um, was actually a Marine and a, a veteran, and he w- went through the academy with me. He was a police officer. So one of the great things about um, that phone call was that I told him that um, I thought Brian was in a really bad spot, and I didn't think that this was going to end well. And he never once questioned me. He didn't question me. He didn't look at me like I was, you know, a crazy wife and didn't know what I was talking about. He just asked me where I needed him to be. And that was one of the big takeaways from that day, um, among some others. But that that I, as a spouse, um, was taken for my words. And, and at that point in time, at different, different places, I hadn't been um, as as a spouse and caregiver of a veteran. And I think that's very important because we do know those nuances of what's going on with our veteran. So I, long story short, um, my husband had, um, when, when I, when I got there and bless my friend's heart, uh, he did not wait for me to go into this quote call for service. Um, when I told him that things weren't going to be good, um, that, you know, uh, he went on in without me and it, and it's a good thing. Um, when I got there, uh, one of, he had brought another buddy, um, who was on the phone with 911. And I thought at the time that, um, my husband had, had completed suicide just by the looking, um, I had been on these scenes before. So, you know, I was looking at it um, from a police officer standpoint. And after um, a couple of uh, shouts from my friend, um, I I quickly learned that my husband was alive um, and, and was down in an embankment there. So, you know, that day for me was um, really a call for service as a police officer. And and thankfully so, because I probably as a wife wouldn't have been able to get through everything that had taken place. Um, my husband did attempt suicide. Um, he was not breathing um, when uh, my friend got there. And um, when I got there, he had no idea where he was at and which is um, 
amazing in itself because it wasn't very far from our house either. So he didn't, he didn't know where he was at. He didn't know what was happening. He did not know what was going on. And, um, so there were some pluses and minuses being a police officer that day. Um, everyone around me thought that I could handle things very well. Um, but you know, as police officers, they come crashing down at some point in time too. Um, and once the, you know, adrenaline wears off and you know that everyone is okay, uh, things kind of hit you. And, um, but at the same time I was, I was lucky because I got to ride in the ambulance with him. And, um, but then once we got to the VA, the ambulance crew immediately left because they thought, Hey, she's a police officer officer. She can handle all this and tell the doctors what happened and all that good stuff. So, you know, there were lots of pluses and minuses that day. Um, but it, it, um, really left me with, you know, we're not educating, we're not educating the family members on what to look for in, um, suicidality, look for those symptoms and signs. And then, and then the big thing is, well, what do you do if you see them? Because isn't that the real scary part? And, and as a, and I've often been asked, well, you were a police officer. So, you know, you, you did know what to do. I'm like, you know, those are simple tools and, and signs that anyone can pick up on. It, It wasn't, it helped me as a police officer to get through the day, but not necessarily to see the signs and symptoms. Um, my husband actually was triggered extremely, um, had a very bad trigger where he was at. Uh, and that sent him into a dissociation that he didn't remember leaving the place where he was at. Um, he, actually went to the corner store down the way and bought alcohol and was probably where he was at for a good five hours. So, you know, some take, um, takeaways from that is, you know, if you have a spouse and they ask you if your husband's still there, uh, you need to find out because there's some reasons behind it. And, um, we need to listen to our family members more than we listen to them and, and I, and educate them. Um, it's really simple. It's a simple tool to do. Just like we're trying to educate our communities now on suicide prevention. How about the first thing being, you know, when these veterans are being seen either at the VA or, you know, in your office, out in the community, at community mental health centers, let's ask if they have family members and let's bring them in on a conversation as well. And I, that's, that's my big um, advocacy piece. We've got to do a better job as seeing the family members. Um, that's a, that's a critical piece to keeping our veterans, uh, alive and in a good quality of life. You're absolutely right. I think that, um, your story illustrates a, a, a whole lot. Um, but, but one, it illustrates the fact that it could have very easily gone a different way had some different things not happened. Um, had you not had the support of your fellow caregiver, then, um, you wouldn't have been able to, to call the friend, right? And so number one, um, not a lot of military or not a lot of spouses, veteran spouses, military spouses 
have that support because it's a shameful thing, right? It's one thing to say, oh, my, my husband is, has got cancer. Oh, what can we do to help? But when it comes to psychological stuff, it's, oh, honey, are you okay? Or, you know, is there, I'm more worried about you and it's a dangerous place, right? So it's a different, different situation. And so you had a, a core set of, um, of, of support who then suggested you need additional support. Um, and then the fact that, and you, you mentioned it, the being heard as a caregiver. Now, um, Yes, he was a Marine and any veteran who hears, Hey, there's a veteran who is in danger. Who's going to, who, who's contemplating uh, taking their own life or, or dying by suicide. Um, then, you know, any veteran will jump in and, and, and do that, but you felt heard and validated. And I think those are two things that, um, if they hadn't been there that day, um, it would have turned out very different, I believe. Most definitely. Um, it, it sure would have. And, you know, I knew who to call though. Uh, I immediately went, okay, yes. Caregiver friend, call her. She's going to be able to, to walk you through getting there Two, Okay. I should call someone else. And I knew immediately who to call. And I think is that safety planning right there. That's safety planning 101. And, and I knew that calling him, he knew Brian and he, and Brian knew him. So if, you know, him showing up in front of Brian wasn't going to cause him any more undue stress that I believed he was already going through. And I think that's what we need as well. If we're not putting safety plans in place, why aren't we? And, and knowing my husband, I had, I, you know, him and I are, are, are very good at communicating. In fact, you know, previously, two times before I had thought he was suicidal, asked him if he was, he told me that he was, and we went straight to, to the um, VA and, and he got the help that he needed. So we, we have to be better at communicating with each other and have these courageous and um, we can't make these conversations difficult. They, they just have to happen. And they happen when there's communication between the spouses, between our professional um, counselors, therapists, doctors. And, not only does my husband have a a safety plan, I do too, because this journey isn't easy. He knows what to look out for in me too. And that's one of the things that we really talk about in our restorative weekends that we do for our caregivers. Do you have a safety plan? Because this journey's not easy. You need one too. Um, so there's, you know, I, I can I can talk back on that day. There were some great moments in there too um, that uh, just kind of blew your mind. On, I mean, the ambulance driver uh, ended up knowing my husband, and uh, my husband. You know, when you get a swarm of first responders coming up on scene, first of all, they listened to me, which I thought was really great. Um, which I know that they don't generally. Um, due to family members, you know, they they come in barreling to the scene, and and um, that's another piece that I've I've tried to to help um, help coordinate where we could do better. But but when I told them, you know, hey, you're scaring him, stop, 
um, he does have PTSD. They all stopped and, you know, the ambulance driver walked up to him and, uh, said his first name. And of course me, I'm thinking, I'm like, is this some joke? Um, I'm like, this is not the time to be joking. Um, uh, and, uh, come to find out he knew my husband and the, the, uh, fate moment in that is he'd never rode the ambulance in this area before. In fact, he only rode it about 40 minutes away from us, but took someone's shift that morning. So um, it, it was my husband walked peacefully with him to the ambulance. Had that not have happened, that day could have went a whole opposite way, too, um, because, you know, it's scary for our veterans after they have no yeah. idea what what's going on. And um, then you get a bunch of police presence around you. So. It- yeah, the idea of having um, having these serendipitous moments, this, these moments of beneficial chance, um, and this is too serious an issue to leave to chance. But but your story is so um, so common that everybody's like it, it, you know, a minute sooner or a minute later, or five minutes sooner or five minutes later, um, or someone taking a different shift. Those kind of things make a lot of difference, um, and so. People's lives are being saved, but we're not, we don't know how we're doing it. Um, and, and that's critical to, like you said, to train people. I really appreciate the idea of the safety plan. So, uh, I don't have, uh, diabetes, but if I had, um, then it would be certain that my wife and I would understand that if I went into, uh, a diabetic shock that, uh, you know, the kids would know where the insulin is or, or what have you, right? There would be, if it was a medical emergency, if I'd had a heart condition or if I were allergic to bee stings, I'd have an EpiPen, right? So the, we, we do this for physical ailments. Um, and, and it allows people with these physical conditions to live lives of, of, you know, joy and happiness, but we don't do this for psychological conditions. No. And I think that's, I just, we're missing it. It, it, we, and it, you know what? It takes one person to start this movement and then another one. Oh my gosh, that's, yeah, you're right. You know, why aren't we treating it like a physical disease? Because that's, if we put those steps in place, it's, we're going to, we're going to be able to save a lot more people than them being, near the waterfall and getting ready to fall, fall off. We can't pluck all them out of that stream at that moment in time. It's, it's just, it's not physically possible. So how can we reach people when they're upstream and it's safety planning and it's knowing the signs, knowing the symptoms and being able to ask that question. Are you feeling like killing yourself today? I mean, yes, it's easy for it to roll off my tongue because I've done it many, many times. But if you don't ask that question, what do you, what do you think you may end up with? And I, and, and you're exactly right. Had we not gotten there when we did, um, he would not be here today. He, he would not be here today. So it, it, um, you have to go with your gut feeling. You, I think our family members are in prime spots to know their veteran and to go with their gut instincts. 
and to they can know who to reach out to, who's a veteran, that their family member, their veteran will open up to. Who is that person? Ask them on a good day. Who is that person I can call? You know, and, and that's in, and it doesn't need to be somebody next door, uh, because as no. you're talking, my wife knows that the person that she would need to call if I were in crisis is in Fort Bragg, North Carolina right now. Yes. Um, and, and so having that, that's, that's another critical piece is, um, who do you call to support, which, which honestly, my buddy Brian's wife would be who she'd call to support, right? So both of them are there. Right. Um, but, but that's who would she call for her support and, and who she would call if I need that support. And the same thing, I, I believe. And it, it's so, and this is, you know, military families, you know, we know we're strung out all across the world. Um, so again, that's a piece of, you know, create a safety plan. Um, don't go into it on your own. I mean, your, your story is very illustrative of, um, of, of the steps that need to be taken, but there's another aspect of your story that I think is, is critical to understand. Um, you know, this and, and maybe, uh, to illustrate for the listeners, we have prevention, like how do we keep that from happening? What you did that day, two years ago on August 9th was intervention. And then there's postvention. What do we do afterwards? Um, for someone who, who died by suicide, so suicide survivors like yourself, like children, um, and for suicide, um, uh, persons who have attempted suicide because that, that period after a suicide attempt is very critical. Um, organizations like the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors would have been there to support you had the, had it happened, had the worst happened that day, you would have gotten support. Had nothing happened that day, you would have gotten support. But what was it like for you in the days and weeks and months after the attempt when you're in this gray area of you need support and he needs support? I think that was, um, I think that is what has really been, um, I almost want to say hurtful, um, for what didn't happen afterwards. And, so obviously I was scared to death. Well, my husband went to the hospital, obviously, and he stayed in, in the hospital for, um, a little more than a week. And, you know, during that week, I did have a couple of phone calls. Um, and then of course, um, the VA reached out to me, but one of the things that, you know, was said from them was make sure I have everything out of the house. Um, so in, in the, um, fact that he may attempt again and they enhanced uh, your, your suspicions of danger, they didn't alleviate. That. Yes. They, they, and I'm like, there's, I'm like, do you, do you know how he attempted? I'm like, I, I can't take all this stuff out of, you know, the house, um, to keep that from happening. They kind of really put an even added burden on me because there was no way that I could keep everything that someone could use. Um, my husband did not use a gun. Now I will tell you our guns in our house have been locked up for two years, even though he did not use a gun. Um, you know, and my husband is able to go to the store and buy whatever he wants. So that was a little, um, it was a burden that shouldn't have been put on me and one that was not feasible. So, so that was my first experience, but the, the next, um, I spent, um, I spent about two and a half months at home 
um, scared for me to leave and go back to work because I didn't know what would happen with him. And then if he wanted to leave the house without me, um, it was um, a anxiety ridden uh, conversation from me. I was scared to death to let him leave the house um, by himself. So if he did have to leave, we did a lot of things together. Or um, we finally got into a mode of, you know, he understood where I was coming from. So, you know, um, I don't want to go with you everywhere you go. But it took a good two months to get to this point of him just being very communicative with me and where he was going. And, you know, I got to this place. Um, I'm now coming home. And and that happened. We had to do that for quite some time for me to feel um, comfortable with him being gone. The thing that I would have thought that would have happened that didn't happen either was no one from my employer called me to check on me. Um, and it was concerning to me and hurtful to me that no one did because we have had officers and spouses with physical ailments that have gotten I mean, so much attention from not only the department, but from the community. So that was, um, that's just like you said before, that's something that needs to change that I obviously was not doing well if I took two months off. I mean, it got to the point that I didn't even have any time and was taking, um, no pay days off. So we need to do a better job at, at paying attention to what's going on after an attempt. We, we generally do a good job after a completed suicide, but I could not, I couldn't find any groups. I couldn't find, um, any, any knowledge of what I was supposed to do or not supposed to do. It was, it was extremely difficult to help myself and help him through a very traumatic event and a trying time. And, and then you can't forget that, you know, we have kids. And if you remember, you know, I sent two of them home when I went to go and find him. So, you know, I had to tell my oldest one, and I apologize, I'll, this is when I tear up, but, you know, I had to tell her what happened. And um, that was, that's a very hard thing to do. And then I had to call his mom and tell, tell her. And, you know, we miss those, those things. We, we forget about those things of, of what the family is having to do after an attempt. And, and there's way, way many people that go through this. It is, my experience is not unique. Um, our recent restorative weekend that we had, uh, we had 12 caregivers there and almost all of them had gone through an attempt and some not just one, but a couple with their, their veterans, and they had never talked about it. You can't stuff that stuff down, you know? You have to, we have to do a better job of getting the help for our family members too. What did get me through that, thankfully, because there were some pretty dark days just for myself with my background, um, in my life, um, it was, it was hard for me to get through were other caregivers. So I thank the Lord that I had been put in a spot 
that I did have other caregivers around me. But I know there's a ton of caregivers out there that still have not tapped into resources. So when a veteran goes to the VA, are we passing out resources for the family? I, I can tell you, I can tell you most of the time not. Um, I, my husband actually just got home from a, uh, a PTSD seven week program and I had to fight tooth and nail to get them to even talk to me. And then I'm like, okay, if you don't have time to talk to me, you all need to have a resource sheet so you can hand to the families because there are resources out there. But when you're in a crisis situation, it's really hard to go and find those. So the the mental health professionals and the doctors, we need to support these family members by giving them the resources they need because they need therapy as well. And so do our kiddos. You're absolutely right. But also, um, the family is critical to success in therapy. Um, and yes. studies have shown this. Uh, there was a study that came out at the beginning of January 18 from the National Science uh, Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, um, that said, um, uh, positive family support was one of the best predictors for positive outcomes in therapy. Um, you know, um, had, um, you know, had God forbid you said this is too much and, and I'm, I'm done. I'm out and, and put your hands up. Um, likely your husband, if it weren't for my wife's support, likely I would not on my own do this, um, you know, reach out and continue to seek and improve and things like that. Um, and, and so this, this idea of including the family in the recovery process, um, can help better outcomes in therapy. I know that as a clinician, while excluding the family from the process, um, only makes it more difficult both for the family and for the veteran. You are absolutely right. I have read that, um, research article and, you know, as, as a spouse, I can sit, you sit here and tell you, you know, my husband can go to therapy and have a great therapy session. When he comes home, if I'm not in a good space, if I'm not doing well, I can say, say one thing or look a certain way and his bad or his good therapy just inter, just turned into a really bad day because I'm not doing well. So, I mean, the research is there. We know that supporting family, families as a whole unit, the outcome for the veteran is better. So it it's frustrating to me that we're still not doing that as much as we should be because the research is there. You're right. You know, and, and that's the, you know, um, a, there is so much research and how do we apply that research? Uh, and, and you're exactly right. I have found, um, uh, many family members in, and here you're specifically talking about your spouse, but I know situations where siblings wish they would have been told, um, that someone was released from a, a facility against medical advice. Um, that the sibling was like, I was five way, five, uh, five miles away. You could have called me, but because of HIPAA and all these things, then, yes. you know, so there are these challenged parents, of course, um, you know, and even children. Um, uh, again, I've, I've mentioned it a couple of times in the show and definitely not going to get into it, but my first suicide intervention was with my own father, again, who was a police officer and a, um, 
and a Vietnam veteran, which uh, ultimately um, didn't go as far as uh, as it had with uh, with your husband, and we were able to get him support. Um, and so, you know, children, adult children of older veterans. Um, and so this isn't just a spouse thing. Like you said, a caregiver is a caregiver. Caregiver can be a cousin. A caregiver can be a friend. I'm I'm curious how your experiences. You had just started caregivers on the home front when this happened, and so you had seen the need. But I'm curious how this experience um, change or or maybe in some ways impacted or drove your work in a different direction. Well, I do believe that. Um, I always tell my husband, I'm like, well, you've given me a good story to illustrate how we must support the family members. Um, it has given me a good platform. Um, I've spoke at the VA uh, here in town, their mental health summit. So it's given me a really good platform. Um, and that because that story is, it is a powerful story. But one of the things that we have incorporated into so I'm huge on suicide prevention. I do believe that um, we can do this. It's going to take a community. But there are simple tools that we can do. And uh, one of the things that we incorporate in our support groups and our restorative weekend, as well as out in the community, is teaching uh, QPR gatekeeper suicide prevention workshops, which are free. And they're easy. You know, it's a it's a it's a basic course that anyone can uh, grab onto. Is it the only course that's out there? Not at all. So we have made sure that we are teaching and educating our caregivers in how to how to do this. And and hey, the great thing about this is we're giving other caregivers a tribe to go, okay, I think my loved one is going through this, 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 and this. What do you think? What would you do? And being able to bounce off ideas off each other is just a powerful thing. Um, and it, it's, um, it gives us the resiliency and the courage and the hopefulness to go, I can do this. I can do this. And that's one of the things, uh, right after I went a couple of different places, um, right after my husband's attempt, um, one of it, I had a retreat scheduled for myself actually. And, uh, my first thought was there's no way that I'm going to be able to do this now. I can't leave. And then I thought, no, this is the time you really need to leave, um, because you need help for yourself. And, um, so that was the first time that I ever told the story. And I immediately had one caregiver who is still a very good friend. And in fact, helps with the organization. Now, um, we had just met and she came running over to me and crying and give me a big hug. And not because she was sorry for me, but because she had gone through the same thing. So I think that's uh, um, very powerful. When you share your story, it gives permission for others to come out and share theirs and get that burden off their chest that they've been carrying around. A similar thing happened when I went out to the Elizabeth Dole um, foundation convening that first year as a, as a fellow, um, I was in a focus group and I ended up telling that story and the same thing happened. And, you know, at first I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm making all these people cry. And, um, you know, which is the last thing I wanted to do, but it was, they were crying because, um, 
it was almost more tears of joy in the fact that I can share my story too. Oh my gosh, I've been through something similar. So out of, out of everything that we teach at a restorative weekend, that's one of the things that I see um, in our comments the most are um, I'm able to tell my story now. And that's huge. They, that that's a huge start of, um, actually a a really good way into therapy. Uh, being able to tell your story and then going, you know what? I go to therapy. You know, you need to go too. It's not a bad thing. If I didn't go, I wouldn't have my head on straight at, on at days. So um, we can't do this uh, without our professional our professional caregivers. Yes, and 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 I think um, I not I think I know that I am reminded of um, the immense strength um, that a military or veteran spouse has or needs to have. Um, I commend you and appreciate on behalf of your husband uh, for your strength. And and um, I've often said that I wouldn't be anywhere close to where I am um, success wise personally anything um, if it weren't for my wife. All it would have taken is maybe one more deployment or one more patrol with one bad thing happen and I come home to an empty house instead of my wife staying with me sometimes more than <laughs> she might have should have. Um, it, but this but the fact that the strength of the military family member um, is just as critical as the strength of the service member um, but it's not as often recognized or discussed and so I really appreciate um, you giving the voice to, the voice to the voiceless, the voice to those caregivers that um, um, that are often standing next to the warrior, standing next to the the disabled veteran, but are, are almost you know never seen like a shadow. Exactly, and you know I think um, because when a veteran is injured, either physically or mentally, you know, it throws the family into something different than a deployment. But I think what we need to remember is as, as families, we were really strong when they were deployed. We took on a lot and we did it. And then something new happens where we've walked into, you know, a reality of, you know, my loved one is not the same. Um, they've got some things going on and we are forgetting how strong that we were. And another thing that we teach, we, we go through the Gallup strengths finder so that they can recognize what their strengths are and then tie that in to what they have been through. So they can go, Oh yeah, you know what? I did do that. I am strong, which is just going to, that's going to hold the family together. I believe that we have, so we have, we have a high rate of veteran homelessness. We have a high rate of suicidality in veterans as well as the families too. Um, but what's going to keep that together? The families staying together. So we must focus on the veteran and the family as one unit and whether that's the veteran getting help um, at, at the VA, at a community mental health um, organization, wherever that's at, a lot of times the family can't get that support there, but they need to find it somewhere. So, so as long as we're all getting support somewhere, that just makes that family stick together. 
And this isn't an easy journey. So you have to be proactive. You must be proactive. Yes, you're certainly right. Um, anecdotally, perhaps, or in my observation in, in working with veterans, and I've, I've talked to uh, longtime listeners will know about the comprehensive veteran mental health, different aspects that we need to pay attention to veterans. And, and in my experience, if we have two things that are taken care of, and those are the addictions, um, uh, whatever we're with the substance use, or, or um, if we can get the addiction under control, and if we have the family stable, we can pretty much handle the TBI, the depression, the PTSD, the lack of purpose and meaning, the moral injury. We can, you know, we can handle those things if the complicating factors of a, a, an unstable family um, and and addictions aren't in the picture. Um, I commend you again, and I appreciate for your husband's sake. And if, and if that's the only thing that you would have done is do this, um, for your husband, that would have been enough. And then moving on beyond that and, and doing that for your fellow caregivers. Um, it's, it's just amazing, Sean. If people wanted to hear more about caregivers on the home front, uh, reach out to you, um, uh, talk to you specifically, how can they find you online? You bet. Um, and thank you. Um, our website, Caregivers on the Homefront, is caregivers-homefront.org. Um, if you Google search it, it should come up. And our contact information is on there. My contact information is on there. Uh, there are, if you want to read more about uh, two years ago on August 9th, um, that's on my blog there. But um, all of our services are on there. If you um, are a caregiver, if you're a family member, and again, you don't have to be a um, official caregiver through the VA. That's not what we're looking for. Um, any era, um, there's uh, information on there. You, My phone number is on there. Please call. You can text me. You can email me. The, the worst thing is for you not to do something. Um, if you'd like to get involved with volunteering, um, please reach out. We've got some things that you can do. Um, so it, it's a, it's a, um, we don't, and one of the big things is the veteran doesn't have to call us. We don't need the veteran. We just need the caregiver or the family member. That's great. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show today, sharing your story and, and sharing the work that you're doing with caregivers on the home front. It's great. Thank you. I really, truly appreciate it. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. As I'm sure that you can imagine, speaking publicly about one of the most painful days of your life is extremely difficult. As with a number of other guests on the show, the courage that Sean and her husband display in publicly telling their story is inspirational. This is the way that we're going to change things, by having open and honest conversations about the danger and impact of suicide. Now, all this talk about suicide is challenging, and I recognize that we can walk a fine line between preparedness and fear-mongering. In a recent conversation about service member and veteran suicide, policy researcher Rajiv Ramshan had this to say about the efforts to raise awareness. Raising mental health awareness is great, but I worry about a society in which we are all trained to think that the person next to us is about to take their lives. What about trainings to promote emotional intelligence or policies to reduce rather than simply cope with stress? Rajiv is right. This is an important concept to consider. 
We must all do what we do and prevent suicide. We should be firefighters and accountants and baristas and bank tellers and also understand the signs and symptoms of suicide. We need to be aware of the dangers of isolation and burdensomeness as much as we are now aware of the dangers of smoking or lack of exercise. Sean's example of raising awareness and educating her community is one way that we need to approach act, and then move beyond this to a place where it's no longer necessary because our service members and their families are living lives of wellness. Thanks for taking the time to listen. To find out more information, you can go to the show notes, which you can find at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST 147. While you're there, hit subscribe in your podcast player of choice and leave an honest rating and review. It helps others find the show. As I mentioned in the beginning, you can sign up for our newsletter by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash update. You can join our growing community to get in on the new podcast, Seeking the Military Suicide Solution, by going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash community. I'd also like to let you know of a series of webinars that I'm producing for NADAC, the National Association for Addiction Professionals. I'm presenting a series of six webinars on service member veteran and military family mental health. There'll be live webinars presented over the remainder of 2019, and after they're complete, they'll be available to watch on demand. See more about the series, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash NADAC to check them out. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. If something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track Not Alone from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness. You can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode. Hit subscribe in your podcast player of choice so you don't miss it. Until next time, remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real. Found a piece and lost a soul. Eventually, my drinking, it got out of control. There in darkness, I roam, struggling to find home. See, suddenly, death didn't feel so alone. 22 a day, destination unknown. It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone. But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone. Nothing but bone weeds overgrown. Up stones. I've triumphed over enemies, co-created mini-me's Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P. I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic tendency, embrace my ability
guys. Take those bottles out, dog, and pour them in the sink. Take the needles out your arm and the gun away from your forehead. It's time, man, you've been through enough pain. Stand up. It's time to stand back up. All my veterans, man, Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. Get up, you know. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.